What up, peeps? 18th of October. Dan Nathan's back. Elizabeth Young, EY from SoFi in studio. Swizzle here on a pretty interesting day. Uh, let's take a look at our rundown. We're going to get right into it. Then we'll sort of talk about things. Earnings disasters. Can you hear me, Morgan Stanley? Elizabeth <laughs> looks at small caps. And I got to tell you something. If you think it's interesting now, wait till Tesla and Netflix report after the bell. EY, Dan, how are you guys? Oh, we're doing okay, Liz. How are you doing? I'm doing great. All right. Interesting. We got a lot of stuff to cover here. And, you know, guy, yesterday on the market call, you and I, about 24 hours, uh, you know, from, from this moment here, we were just kind of scratching our heads. We we're talking mm -hmm. about the yield move and we're like, how the hell are equities now flat on the day? They had opened yeah. down and they ripped up. And, you know, it's funny, like, 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 let's all take a step back for a second. It was one of those days that it was kind of causing me to kind of figure out why I'm bearish. You know what I mean? Why I'm bearish on equities. And we talk about it every day on our podcast, on the tape, market call, and CNBC's Fast Money, the fine program that you do. You're going to do Closing Bell this afternoon, aren't sure you? With our good friend Scott Wapner. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know, God, it was like one of those days where it's like, you know, like, why? Why am I like this? Now, today, a little different. You just mentioned Morgan Stanley. Let's just throw that chart up. Down 8% after their earnings and the guidance and the lack of visibility that they have. But one of the things that I thought was more interesting than the one-year chart of it falling off the bottom right here, okay, is look at this 20-year chart, okay? So we've been talking about Bank America, guy. You've been talking about, look at that. That is a log chart, okay? Mm -hmm. So that prior high, that is right before the financial crisis, if you go look at that, okay? And look where we are on that thing. We are at that uptrend. If you take out the, the COVID kind of short-term sort of thing, that's kind of a big level. And you also look at the series of lower highs that it's made, right, over the last year or so, that is really not a great looking chart for a company that I think is fairly important. If you think about their exposure on a whole host of different things, um, you know, then let's kind of flash forward a little bit. Look at this United. Look, look, look what's going on. This is the other disaster du jour today. Also down about 8%. Also right about to make new 52-week lows. That one's not great. Another one I just had up here was uh, Interactive Brokers Guy. And one of the things I thought was interesting about this, they were just talking about you know, trading volumes and the like, that thing's at a key level too. So, you know, it, it's funny. We've talked about the damage under the hood uh, around the, the, the market in general. Liz, I know you're going to talk about small caps and too. I mean, nothing trades well. That's one of the main reasons why I'm bearish. I'm just going to kick it back to you, Guy, if you could give us one of the main reasons. And then obviously, Liz, you're going to take a crack at this. Well, the, the main reason I'm bearish is, you know, I, again, I think it's been pretty well documented, my disdain for central bankers and their, um, wants to sort of keep asset prices elevated. And I think for a long time now, we've said that genie's out of the bottle. And I think you're starting to see it around the edges. And when you see, you know, we'll talk about the 10-year yield. Elizabeth can talk about it. The move that we've seen, if you think about what the 10-year the was prior to Israel-Palestine, uh, what happened in the wake of that, a flight to quality took 10-year yields down about 4.5%. And now here we are north of the levels that we started at prior to. That is telling you a story. And the story that it tells, I don't think, is a particularly good one. Other people will say otherwise. So I think the move in yields is vitally important to what's going on. I don't think the market is paying enough attention. And at a certain point, valuations do matter. And to your other point, the damage has been done in dozens, if not hundreds of stocks already Really, the only thing keeping us afloat are those handful of names we seemingly talk about every day. 
Uh, if we go back, why am I bearish? And I don't even like to use the word bearish. Why am I cautious? I have said this before. I've written it many times. We have to respect the cycle and the business cycle will continue to be the business cycle. No matter how sectors react, no matter how big a weight something is, we still go through business cycles. There are signals, not only in the economy, but across the broader market that we are still late cycle. So some of the behavior that you're seeing in asset classes, the behavior even that you're in bonds, right? TLT down, what, 15% this year? And large caps outperforming small caps by about 14 percentage points. That is very characteristic of late cycle behavior. So because of where I think we are and because of where I think it's very clear that the market is telling us we are, I am still cautious because that, that means that we have to go through some kind of contraction, slowdown, drawdown, whatever you want to call it. The severity is still unknown before we embark on early cycle again. So a lot of these yeah. bull cries are for things that should happen in early cycle behavior. We're just not there. All right, so Guy just mentioned at some point valuations will matter. Maybe they could throw this up. This is from the Daily Shot. This is today. The S&P 500 equity risk premium is nearing zero for the first time in over two decades. All right, Liz, let's talk about it. So it's the risk-free rate of return, right, on bonds versus the expected return of equities nearing zero. What does that mean to you? I know that you, I think you wrote about this in your note uh, on the SoFi blog a few weeks ago here. Yep. Um, you know, I mean, this is not a relationship that we've seen between equities right and bonds in in again two years or 20 years well what this tells you very simply is you're not being paid to take risk no. and as an investor if i'm going to take risk i want to get paid for it you can take risk in a lot of different ways you take risk in the equity market you take risk with longer duration bonds you're not getting paid to do it in the equity market anymore and the other thing that it tells you is we talk about valuations all the time a lot of times i think they get sort of named as a timing mechanism mm -hmm. as you know this is overvalued a bad timing it's mechanism it's a terrible yeah. timing yeah. mechanism so they get wrongly named as a timing mechanism Valuations are not good at telling you when to buy something or when to sell something, but they are good at telling you what the forward return expectations should be. And the forward return expectations, as reflected in the equity risk premium and as reflected in valuations, are pretty lackluster for the next five yeah. to 10 years if we stay at these levels. Yeah. So, Guy, remember, we? I think we had Mike Wilson on um, way early in this year. We were talking about valuation as a bad timing tool. Mm -hmm. Last year, when the S&P was at its lows in October, it was pricing a whole heck of a lot of things, right? But it was interesting. I think Mike broke this out for us. He said that the average stock away from the top 15 or something in the S&P 500 at the lows in October of 2022 was trading at a, like a trough multiple. It traded mm -hmm. down to 13 times, right? Mm -hmm. So in many ways, like the, the like like most of the stocks in, in large caps had already discounted the worst case scenario for, you know, let's call it something more than a soft landing, like, like you know, a hard-ish, you know, recession or something like that. So like now here we are, we're in this situation where we've listed, you know, there are probably a dozen sectors in the S&P that are down more than 10% from the recent highs. So they're correcting, but we still have that scenario where 15 stocks are keeping things elevated. We've tracked the fact set data, our main man butters tracks this. I think the S&P on a forward basis trading about 17 and a half, you know, times, 18 times or something. That's basically in line with a 10 year average with rates much higher than the 10 year average of, of, of rates over that period. Talk to us a little bit about that. They've become, and we've mentioned this, but for new audience members, those names, their own, their own asset class. So ironically, sometimes uh, sell-offs in the broader market are actually supportive of those names because money makes its way, again, from stocks that are getting bludgeoned or under pressure to these names as a perceived safe haven. 
which I understand that they are. I mean, in a lot of ways, if you think about it, a lot of names we talk about are somewhat impervious to higher rates. As a matter of fact, with some of their balance sheets, you can make the argument that higher rates are actually supportive of those stocks. But the problem, of course, is for many of those names, this money flow has created valuations for these stocks that make zero sense in this environment. So the last sort of piece of this puzzle, I would imagine, as people get out of names into these names, is then the exodus of these generals that we've talked about forever. When that starts to happen, I think then you can see some sort of end in sight, but we're not even close to that yet. Yeah, Although you know, I will say this, we're seeing it around the edges in NVIDIA. Doug Cass has been pointing that. I'm sure we've talked about it as well. That's sort of the outlier here. But ex-NVIDIA, you haven't really seen it all that much. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, listen, we, we've highlighted the fact that many of the largest, you know, Microsoft, um, Apple, both of those were down 15% at their recent lows from those recent highs in July, despite the fact that I don't think the NASDAQ to trough is down more than nine percent you know is so so we're seeing some outperformance of the downside the one of the reasons but they're still up a lot on the year right because they've they've come so far and that is all the gains um in the s p 500 um i had a great conversation it dropped in the podcast stores today on ok computer pod go to spotify um go to apple i had dan niles of soturi funds say Tory funds, excuse me. He has um, been trading uh, tech stocks, uh, you know, for for decades now. He was a great analyst in the '90s, and um, he's been a great fund manager. He's had great performance over the last couple of years. And we talked, guy, just about that. We specifically focused on Apple, which he is short. He's also short Tesla. He is long of the Nvidia. We talked about that. So go check that out in the podcast store. That's OK Computer. Myself and Dan Niles. It dropped this morning. Okay, Liz. We talked about risk and the equity risk premium. I thought this was. Interesting headline today. Goldman Strategist warned geopolitics pose risk to stock market. Now we all know that, right? And mm -hmm. in, in, in general here, but I thought this was interesting because this is something that Guy has been talking about. While renewed geopolitical risk could bring some relief on rates and raise the possibility of more dovish central bank policies, a prolonged period of geopolitical uncertainty coupled with uh, a still inflationary macro environment is likely to eventually trigger growth concerns. So Guy's point would be that you would see a flight to quality if these geopolitical situations flare up a little bit, mm -hmm. but it really speaks, if we get growth concern, we, it speaks to stagflation, which again, yeah. won't be good for equity valuations. No, of course not. And and I think he's right. And and I think I said this a couple of weeks ago when, when Marco Kalanovic talked, you gotta, you gotta listen. So, yeah. so here's the thing. Geopolitical concerns are always sort of rumbling in the background. We're always worried about something that could happen, something that has happened. A lot of it sometimes, especially in faraway lands, feels very removed from U.S. stock markets and U.S. stocks have been resilient in the face of a lot of that for a long time. Even if there isn't spillover into U.S. markets, he is absolutely right that the Fed can't necessarily save us from geopolitical risk. Lowering rates doesn't save us from geopolitical risk. And all it does at this point in the cycle, again, respect the cycle, all it does at this point in the cycle is just stoke inflation fears mm -hmm. higher and higher. So they are stuck between a rock and a hard place. And I will say tomorrow, the reason I'm doing market call today, tomorrow <laughs> I get to see when Mr. Jerome Powell speak. Uh, and I'm very interested to hear. You're going to bring a sign like, like the folks at college a, game day, like that sort of I'm thing. Bring a foam foam finger. finger. Guy, what would yeah. your sign be? If you were like, if it was the version of college game day for the FOMC meeting or something <laughs> like that, and you were one of those guys lurking in the background, what would your sign say? Go home, asshole. <laughs> and then I'd probably get kicked but out. No, you didn't preface that by saying, you know, oftentimes <laughs> you say, I'm sure he's a really nice guy. You know what I mean? Like you said, you do say that. 
<laughs> right? I'm sure he's a lovely guy. Yeah, I, you know, right, it's funny. It, I, it yeah. No, it's look, EY, what she just said is spot on. There's no saving us from geopolitical risk that is clearly out there. And if you think about the comments that Jamie Dimon made, again, maybe they're somewhat self-serving because of the position of JP Morgan vis-a-vis some of the other banks. You know, maybe he says things like that, understanding that they're in the catbird seat and everybody is not. But even with that said, you have to listen to what the man said. And he said, this is the scariest environment we've been in probably over the last 50 or so years. And I agree with him. So think about that scary environment. What typically happens under those circumstances? The market rushes to find safety. And typically that safety is in the form of treasuries. The exact opposite is happening here. We saw a two-day event where treasury yields went lower. And now here we are north of 4.9%. That is problematic. And it's problematic because the market, again, the buyers of last resort, the Fed is not there. Bank of Japan is not there. And I got to tell you something, Dan Nathan's 401k is not going to be supportive of, of, you know, the treasury market. It's just not happening. And I say that somewhat tongue in cheek. The historic buyers are not there. As a matter of fact, in terms of the Bank of Japan, they're probably actually selling treasuries. And with each day that their currency gets weaker, more treasuries need to be sold, which means rates go higher. That is not a good environment at all. The exact opposite of what should be happening is happening right before our very eyes. And look, at 4350 in the S&P, nobody cares. I get it. But you know what? I'm just telling you, it's just a matter of time before all these things sort of find their way into the equity market. Yeah, yeah, you know, and and Liz, this brings us to one thing that I think confounds many market participants, market watchers, um, you know, just what's going on in the, you know, in the jobs market here. And and guy has mentioned this on many occasions. It's made the job the, the Fed's job that much harder, you know, and we've been talking a lot about let's say small and medium business as what like they employ maybe two thirds of, of Americans mm-hmm. here, and mm-hmm. and and you brought this up uh, a couple of weeks ago, but you actually brought some receipts today. You want to talk about employment and the jobs picture and what's mm-hmm. going on in small cap stock land. And I think yeah. this is a really interesting one. And so at the time, I think I, I didn't, we all just say, well, I'm sure there's some core, you know, like something going on here. And you're like, well, you know what, let me go back to my main man, Mario, probably. And let's see what's going on. Is that what you did? Is that what you did? <laughs> Mario mm-hmm. did build some charts. Okay, for me fair today. Enough. Okay. I write my columns on Wednesday mornings. They drop on Thursday morning. So I've written this column, but it is not released yet. You guys get a little preview here. Uh, anybody who listens to me knows that I talk about small caps a lot. I'm going to read you one little passage from my note. Despite my affinity for small caps, my philosophical belief that they can offer outsized opportunities and that they are one of the pillars of the American dream, even I can admit they're not always a good buy. So when you look at this chart, what we're looking at with the magenta line is it's basically small caps versus large caps. So this is when small caps outperform large caps. And then the blue line is the unemployment rate. The takeaway here, because we've had a couple head fakes this year, we've had two big head fakes in small caps where in January they outperformed the S&P by about three percentage points, and then June and July they outperformed handily. But still, year to date, small caps are underperforming the S&P by 14 percentage points. So why do we have so many head fakes? Again, because of the cycle, because of the business cycle. Small caps start a sustained period of outperformance when the unemployment rate is rising quickly. We are not there yet. We're still in a tight labor market. We have not yet transitioned into that contraction where the labor market starts to falter. So this is not yet the time to buy small caps. If you read that blog post tomorrow when it drops, don't worry, I'll post it all over the place. There's a table in there too that'll show you the performance of large caps versus small caps and long-term government bonds 
six months before a recession, during a recession, and six months after a recession. And the patterns are absolutely crystal clear. Large caps outperform before, small caps knock the cover off the ball afterwards, bonds do really well during. So there's a lot that I think we need to be careful of here in making assumptions that even a, a one or two month period of outperformance is not a pro-cyclical signal. It's a head fake. Guy, thoughts? We've talked, we talked about it with Carter, who did some work on those micro cap names and the underperformance. And we suggested, again, sort of dovetailing some of these comments that maybe they were telling the story that the employment market is starting to pick up over the next couple of months. You know, the weakness there at some point manifests its way into the employment picture. And we have seen head fakes to Elizabeth's point. But again, these things are sort of they're slow moving, slow moving, and then they're not so slow moving. And I'll say again, you know, the unemployment rate, which is seemingly stuck, the, clearly the powers that be wanted to go higher, but it's gonna, not going to move in a linear way, Dan, in my opinion. It's going to start to sort of stair step higher in a way that I think is going to be somewhat uncontrollable, at least for the Federal Reserve. And that is, you know, that's been my concern and it continues to be my concern. And it's funny you know, as we're sitting here, we started this show, the S&P was on the lows at 43.25 or so. And for no apparent reason, unless you can glean one, you know, we've rallied about half a percent. We've rallied 23 S&P handles seemingly on nothing. And, you know, that's the market that we find ourselves in. And I think moves like this and, and resilience like this is why a lot of times I think the message we're trying to send gets somewhat drowned out by the broader market. Yeah, no doubt. And, and if we want to just look at large caps here too, you know, talking about this little 10, the 10, 10 handle move or something like that. I mean, listen, you know, I, who knows how, like what moves these algos and especially if you'd like kind of tie it back to, um, you know, just some of the geopolitical risk we're talking about. I mean, think about one of the reasons if you just opened the wallstreetjournal.com last night after like the rally off of the lows, they're saying that, you know, like some of the, you know, Biden going there is, to Israel is going to be something that put pressure on the Israelis and maybe it doesn't escalate. I mean, we're going to have these tape bombs left and right and none of them are going to mean a whole heck of a lot. Right. So um, to me, like, you know, you just got to kind of stay the course a little bit. If I look at the S&P 500 and I look at this uptrend that's been in place from those October lows. And you see, you know, obviously we tagged it in, in the March uh, regional banking crisis. We kind of got just below it. That 4,200 level was 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 the breakout level um, from June. June We had that little bounce here. Um, you know, this this downtrend line has been in place. Maybe there was some a little more room to the upside, maybe 4,400, making a little bit of a flag here. But I think, Guy, you and I both feel like if, if the, what we've seen from earnings so far, I was not impressed with how the banks acted, given how poorly they acted into earnings. And maybe half of them have responded, you know, reported, Liz, like the bounces that we saw were not particularly <laughs> great. OK. And then if you look at Morgan Stanley again today, down eight percent, you look at the KRE down two and a half percent. You look at we just mentioned IBKR. Schwab is giving back half of its gains, maybe on the back of, of uh, interactive broker uh, brokers a little bit. Just banks act like they want to make new lows um, to me. And I just don't know you how you have an S&P challenging a downtrend line on you know like getting ready to break out towards the prior highs if the banks are making new lows and, and it's not just the banks i mean like we can go on and on look at transports look at you know like, like so there's lots of sectors that act poorly here so for you liz what's the what's the buy point in an s p 500 where you think short-term oversold sort of situation where you might think about you know, okay, well, I got to deploy some capital here. I might think about dollar cost averaging it. Is it somewhere down about 
4,000 or something like that. And I know that we're 4,350 or something, 4,340. I'm just curious how you're thinking about large cap stocks. Well, first of all, I'll tell you how the index is is challenging new highs with the banks down. You've got financials as less than 13% of the index, yeah. tech as almost 30% of the index. So those stocks that are doing well, just completely overpowering, despite the fact that they are a lower portion of earnings growth, right? Yep. So anyway, that's fundamentals versus whatever's happening uh, when the market's open. I am not right now, and even at even at four thousand, I wouldn't say I'm at a place where I would just broadly buy the S and P. I'm I'm dripping in. I'm tiptoeing into some places. Consumer staples is one of them. We talked about that mm -hmm. earlier this week and last week because I think it's getting closer to the point where the market, obviously the market is sniffing some of this out, but to the point where the market decidedly shifts to risk off or to defensive names. And I want to be positioned for that if and when it happens. And when you look at the performance of some of those defensives, consumer staples in particular, since that local high in July, down pretty much quite a bit more than the broad market. I don't think that this is a time to start to think about where do I deploy capital broadly. I think this is a time that you still have to be picky and I would be defensive about yeah, it. Yeah. And Guy, you know, one thing that's interesting is, is, you know, when you think about the geopolitical situation, you think about inflationary inputs, you know, kind of picking back up a little bit, you know, you think about reshoring and, and all this stuff. I, I actually thought this was really interesting um, this week that the data about China iPhone sales, we talked about it earlier in the week down year over year, I think uh, four or 5% versus mm -hmm. the uh, iPhone 14 launch. And then also in September that Tesla sales in China, okay, were down 11%. I actually think, and we've been talking about this, okay, that those two are going to be the last battles fought, but those are $4 trillion in market cap in us market cap that heavily heavily rely on china for access to their consumers for manufacturing their supply chains have been reoriented there you know that, that sort of thing so when i think about the data that we've gotten and we're going to talk a little bit about tesla reports tonight after the close i you know i say to myself man there are some disasters lurking there and these stocks are starting to kind of show um i i think their hand a little bit so thoughts on that because if the s p you know goes to four thousand, that's down 13 percent from its july highs and apple and, and and tesla and and microsoft and some of these things start leading to the downside we're going back towards those October 2022 lows, in my opinion. What was that, about 3,600 or something like that? Yeah, so to close the loop, Dougie actually emailed me. He might have as well. So apparently the rally has been predicated on what was a, a, a decent or a good 20-year bond auction, and yields did come back in a tad. So we'll see if mm -hmm. that holds. Obviously, we sold off last week on what was a rather poor bond auction. So we'll see. A little push-me-pull-you going on with that. So that's that. To answer your question, you know, Politically, whether it's the right thing or wrong thing to do, I'm not going to opine, but we're obviously turning up the heat and the U.S.-China relations in terms of chips with this administration and the prior administration. Maybe that's the 100% right thing to do. I'm not going to debate it. But with that said, there's costs associated with that. And I think the, the tit for tat that's going to go on, we've seen it to a certain extent, but I think the Chinese will react again. I think they obviously banned employees from having Apple devices. And I'm I'm full belief that at some point you're going to see some sort of shadow ban of Apple devices in China, which is not going to be particularly pleasant for the stock. And we'll see how that plays out. So that's out there in terms of Tesla. Listen, price cuts are great if you get the commensurate volume on the other side. If you can make up in price cuts in terms of volume, then they sort of offset each other. And sometimes it's actually a good thing. We're going to find out tonight if those price cuts hurt margins in any way, shape, or form. Because if they're price cuts 
and a slowdown in demand, it's going to manifest itself in lower margins, which theoretically should not be good for the stock, Dan. Yeah, I just think, you know, and we could talk about this right now, maybe. So the implied move in the other direction is about 6% for Tesla. And when you think about it, I, I mean, I think the street is like a 17.5% uh, gross margins. There's a guy I follow online uh, who does a great job. is Troy Tesla-like. Um, and, uh, you know, I subscribe to a blog that he does. He's not a bull. He's not a bear. He just tracks deliveries. He tracks VIN numbers, he tracks a lot of data. And I think his gross margin number is probably based on pricing and, and a whole host of other things that he tracks looks closer to 17% than it does to 18%. But the, the, but the kicker here is like, how well is this company managing costs? Right. And so especially battery costs have come down this. So there is room. I mean, there are ways that they maybe do a little better on margins, but there's also ways because they've been cutting prices so dramatically and the competition in China is really stiff from local makers. And if you do have some sort of nationalistic tendencies, which might be the case as it relates to Apple, as far as what, you know, Chinese consumers are buying to me, you know, Carter had a note out and we're charting just about an hour ago or something. He, he gave five different terms for a coin flip, 50-50 uh, of this, that, whatever. He said that his inclination is lower. I, I kind of think that we're probably headed back towards that 200-day moving average. But Liz, thoughts on... You know, Guy's point is like, he's like not going to opine politically what it means that Biden went to Israel or this or whatever. Well, you know what? Putin is in China or, or was in China this week, you know, visiting President Xi. And so there are plenty of tits for tats, you know what I mean, that could go on here. Or I think it's just singular. Um, <laughs> tit um, for tat. Tit for tat. Um, you know, and, and that also leads to that going back to that geopolitical uncertainty, you know. And so I, I don't know, like as we go into 2024, I feel like. The higher we were to go right now with the lack of visibility we have on the geopolitical front, on the inflationary front, on, you know, on so many things, is the, I think next year is going to be a really hard year for the well, stock. Well, I mean, go back to the equity risk premium idea, yeah. right? You've got risks increasing everywhere, externally, even under the surface in the market, earnings wise, yet you're getting paid less and less every day to take said risk. Yeah. That is not a good place to be as an investor. And you have to be eyes wide open going into any decision that you're making. And that's why I say this is not a time that you broadly buy the S&P. This is a time that you'd be picky about it and make sure that you're taking risk in the right places. And this is something I talk about with, with clients and investors, individual investors all the time. Think about it as a risk budget. Every investor has a risk budget. If you have spent your budget already, you don't have any more to spend. Yeah. Don't borrow to spend more of a risk budget because you're going to expose yourself. And I would imagine if you're fully invested in the equity market, your risk budget is spent. Right so now. Guy knows he made a joke about my 401k earlier. He knows that my risk budget in Tesla is kind of spent here a little bit. But I just want to make one point. We talk about implied moves in the options market. So Tesla reports today after the close. The stock's trading about 245. So you want to figure out that implied move. Okay, you take the 245 strike call and the 245 strike put that is in the weekly expiration that expires on October 20th, on Friday, basically on the close. You put those two premiums together, they're each about $4, okay? So that's $8 combined. That's called the straddle. That is the expected move between now and Friday's close in Tesla. And you say on a $245 stock, okay, it's not the end of the world, 6%. The stock has moved a lot on average over the last you know 10 quarters or something like that. But if you are inclined... Okay, to say, you know, you have conviction talking about risk budgets. Okay, and I, I listen, and guy, you, 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 I'd love for your take on this. Most people should not be picking a direction on a stock into a binary event, especially one where the implied move is high, meaning the implied volatility in the options, the price of options 
is high, right? So that means you're paying a high premium to make that defined risk bet. But over the last two quarters, I mean, Tesla sold off 10% mm-hmm. last quarter and the quarter before that. So if you were to spend, let's say, 3%, $4, okay, on that 245 put, you need a break even down at 241 by Friday's close. That seems pretty reasonable if you have conviction. If you have a down 10%, okay, that'd be down 24. You spent $4, okay, to possibly make 20 if you thought the stock could be down 10%. Okay, now there's no past performance. It's not indicative of future returns and all that. Like, guys, speak to that a little bit. Well, it's a, it's obviously somewhat of a binary event to your point. I mean, you're investing this money understanding you could lose the entirety of it by Friday's close or sometime on Friday. The flip side of that coin is, you know, just the stock moves alone, you outline the math. But what you know and what we've talked about is if directionally you are right, not only will you make it in terms of the price move, but volatility is going to start to work in your favor in a pretty meaningful way as well. And then I think you're starting to look, OK, where could this potentially go to? If you're right, and then you start to look at the 200-day moving average around 215 or so, more likely the third point of that uptrend line around 238-ish. But you get what I'm saying here. That's how I would look at this. And you know, sometimes people enjoy doing these things, and I totally get it. But understand, there is a high risk, high reward associated with this. All right. So last thing, let's hit here. Let's hit Netflix reports after the close, 8% implied move. I just want to make the point that the last four quarters, it's moved on average of about 8%. But Liz, when you look at this chart, you see that spike uh, back in July and mid-July. That's where the stock traded the moment. Okay. That was like the day that it closed prior to Q2 earnings. Think about how different sentiment is towards mega cap tech stocks right now versus where it was in mid-July. We were still anything ad related, anything AI related, anything, you know, like everything was working. This stock is down 27% from that close the day that they reported Q2 earnings. I'm not going to ask you to opine specifically on Netflix, but talk about the sentiment because again, this is not like, I'm going to tell you, the fact that stock's down 27% doesn't make me want to go out and say, sell it. Even if the fundamentals are like, you know, declining or getting worse or, or, you know, whatever it is, because there's a lot of bad news in the stock. Do you agree with that? And I'm not trying to make a call on Netflix one way or another here, because, you know, it does feel like if they were to guide down in a couple of things that they've been saying about the ad supported model, this, you know, that stock could be headed, you know, right back to, I don't know, you tell me 250 or something like that, a hundred bucks to the downside. Yeah, I mean, sentiment is a powerful force, and this chart is a perfect example of that. July was the local top, right? Yeah. That was the that was the high, and that was an AI-driven high where we thought it was just a magic button. As long as you said those words on your earnings call, everything was good. I think now, even if expectations are still a little bit too optimistic into 2024 for tech companies yeah. across the board, you've got probably investors out there, again, back to the equity risk premium, you're not going to be rewarded as handsomely for beating. You're not going to be rewarded as handsomely for saying AI anymore, right? That the ship hasn't sailed, but the excitement has waned. But I think you'll be punished for missing. And the market right now is priced for really, really strong expectations on earnings through the rest of this year and into 2024. So anybody that comes out and says, oh, you know what? We can't meet that, I think is going to get punished more than we've been used to seeing. Guy, and that that point, the last one Liz made, I think is the most important one. And like, like maybe those guys could pull up the Morgan Stanley chart, the one-year chart again, mm-hmm. because here's a stock where sentiment was really poor headed into the vents. Like some of the names that had reported earlier in the week wasn't so bad. The stocks were green afterwards. That sort of move in a household like name like this is telling you that maybe, 
maybe something shifted in the market over the last three months or so since Q2 earnings season? No, listen, no question about it. I mean, a name like that should not have the magnitude move to the downside, especially given the fact that it has sold off into this in the first place. So, you know, it has been sort of doing the slow grind and then it sort of cascades all at once. And you make this point, if a name like Morgan Stanley can do it or na whatever name you want to pick to see these magnitude moves, it stands to reason it could happen in other individual names and potentially broader market as well. But before we get out, Dan, real quick, we have a question from Snook Aru and newbie here, young 20-year-old, should I buy banks that are cheap or just buy ETFs long? Thanks. So the XLF is the one, obviously, you probably look at. What I'll tell you is here at 33, we're effectively the same price in the XLF that we were in February of 2020 before, obviously, the world started coming in through the lens of the stock market. So it's basically, my point is, it's gone nowhere in the last three years. You did have a move higher, obviously, into January of 2022. I'm not a big ETF person. Some banks are cheap because they should be cheap. But I'll answer your question by saying you got to pick one that you think, as a 20-year-old, will sort of do the slow burn higher over the course of the next 10 to 15 years. And I would imagine, Dan, and you and Elizabeth probably would agree, all roads seemingly lead to J.P. Morgan on that front. I obviously cannot give advice on specific stocks. The only thing I'd be careful with, and I would echo these comments from Guy, careful with the ETF, the XLF. If you look at just what's happening in yields right now because of what's happening in the yield curve, we talk about the re-steepening being really the problem, not the inversion itself. But look at what's happening in yields. You've got the 10-year at freshies, right? Fresh highs. You've got the two-year at freshies yesterday. That's an ominous situation. And although it may seem like a re-steepening yield curve is good for banks, the path to getting back to a normal yield curve can be really painful. So I would wait this out on a broad bank ETF. Yeah, I just while. mentioned two things. Um, XLF guy, which you just mentioned, I know you know that Berkshire Hathaway is 13.5% of the weight of that. I, I think, listen, sadly, I think that, you know, when there's new management there, new leadership there, I don't think the stock is going to enjoy the same, you know, sort of, um, you know, sentiment um, that it has. And so, like, to me, the XLF is problematic, you know, especially if you're bearish on banks, because I think there's a tape bomb lurking in, in. And I know you could have said that at any point over the last 10 years or something like that. But I feel like, you know, it, it's probably pretty close. And the last point I'll make is look at the BKX. OK, this is, uh, um, you know, the KBW Bank Index. This thing is going back towards its 60, the, the, the recent lows, in my opinion. I mean, so I I, I don't think you have to, um, you know, you, you don't have to start chasing here. And the last point I'll just make is I agree with Guy Christopher Adami that JP Morgan, I mean, best of breed, best of breed, best of breed, I mean, like, you know, whatever, man. Like, you want to go buy Citibank? It looks like a disaster. You want to make Bank, Bank America? Disaster. You know, look at Morgan Stanley today. I actually like the diversification of a Morgan Stanley, um, you know, but but I don't know, you know, like, like, like disaster. So, um, all right. Well, we covered a lot of ground here, guy. We did, but we have to tease something, as, it, oh, yeah. as they say. Now, yeah, what are we teasing? Well, oh, the CME oh, challenge, yeah. Dan. Come on. I mean, the CME equity challenge. Look at that. All right. So, so here's the deal. You got to sign up for this. You know where to go. CMEgroup.com slash equity challenge. Sign up there. Okay. Create an account. It's going to start trading on Sunday, October 22nd. And you can trade all of the equity futures products that are traded on the CME. Okay. And I guess the winner gets prizes. We did this in the bond challenge. You, uh, Danny and myself did not fare particularly well. We promised to do better in the <laughs> equity futures challenge. And here's the deal. If you go there now, and you sign up, 
okay, and you take a screenshot of your sign-up and you send it to contact at riskversal.com, you're going to get one of those tricked-out market call hats. Look at that. Oh. You're going to get one for free, Liz. Yeah, I don't have uh, one of those. Yeah, well, you're going to get one. They're, they're being made. Uh, Timmy's all over it. Okay. Um, but that's the deal. Let's go bug uh, Amanda. She loves getting those emails. She's not, it's not bugging <laughs> her. But let's do that. Sign up, cmegroup.com slash equity challenge you're going to trade the heck out of the equity futures this is a paper trading situation <laughs> but you're going to get access to all the tools and all the analytics on the cme uh, group.com and you can just kind of figure out some new strategies and, and figure out ways to trade and make money using equity futures makes a lot of sense it costs you nothing but time and the education is invaluable if you want to go down this route we thank you obviously we want to thank elizabeth coming in on a wednesday by the way is this thing televised tomorrow? If I'm watching, will I see you like in one of the rows? No, no. It's like in a big banquet hall. I'll be at one of those round tables, and I'm sure there's about 100 round tables. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. It might be televised, but you're not going to hear my voice screaming. Will you, from, will, you, from will you be sitting with JP, or will you be sitting at a different <laughs> table? <laughs> no. I mean, I'd love to meet him, but right. no, I don't, I don't think he's going to be yeah. sitting with me. Duly noted. Maybe I'll sneak in. I mean, that would be fun. They have your they have your picture up. There's guys like yeah. with like earpieces. That's, and some, that's fine. Pictures of that's guys. That's fine. Put my head. picture up because they know I'm right. They're scared of me because they know I I'm correct. Anyway, that's for another show. I want to thank our sponsors. Uh, SoFi. I think we're doing SoFi today. Maybe I'm not wrong. I don't know. But yeah, yeah, get your money right. So I'm here. Well, get, your money, I know, get your money right all in one app. Oh, and of course, <laughs> FactSet Financial Data Analytics, powered by Tomorrow. Rangers play tomorrow. They don't play tonight. The Phillies, my God, that team is fun to watch. And the Texas Rangers, look at what's going on there. But nobody wants to talk about that. We'll see you tomorrow, folks. See you tomorrow.